Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. One theme that's come through on this podcast is that all of the systems in our bodies are connected. We can't talk about hormone health without talking about gut health. And we can't even attempt to balance hormones if the gut is not working properly. So today I wanted to bring in an expert who could talk about the gut hormone connection. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. Dr. Lee Wagner is an integrative dietitian with a PhD in medical nutrition science. She has a virtual private practice and helps her clients optimize their energy, decrease pain, fix digestion, and balance hormones using in-depth personalized nutrition. Lee also offers her Mind Your Body program to women wanting to learn how to tune into their bodies and find what foods make them feel their best without obsessing over every single bite. Lee is the co-editor of the textbook, Integrative and Functional Medical Nutrition Therapy, which is a fantastic resource for practitioners, by the way, and loves examining the bridge between conventional and integrative and functional approaches to health. She and her husband and their rescue dogs split their time between Kansas City and Colorado. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Wagner. I am so excited to chat with you today. Why don't you tell the audience a little about your background and what you do? All right. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. And definitely, please call me Lee. I always ask <laughs> friends, colleagues, clients to call me Lee. So never Dr. Wagner, even though it is in the name of my business. But I'm Lee Wagner. I'm a registered dietitian. Um, I have a PhD in medical nutrition science. Um, I'm based in Kansas City in private practice. Prior to going out in private practice in 2018, I was for eight years practiced in an integrative medicine clinic in an academic medical center. Really, my background is in-depth personalized nutrition. I've seen kind of a lot of different conditions and having those eight years of clinical practice in an outpatient clinic. And so um, I, I love that work of in-depth personalized care. Um, I think I already said that I'm based in Kansas City. My husband and I really love hiking and um, backpacking, so we do spend a lot of time in the mountains, and I'm really excited to chat with you today. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I always think of you as as Dr. Lee Wagner, like all one word. Um, I think, you know, having knowing your connection with working on functional medicine textbooks and the research you've done and all of that. Um, you know, I think maybe, maybe something our audience doesn't know is that there are dietitians who go on to get their PhD. Yeah. It's a small group of us, I think, but it definitely is growing and it's been fun to see kind of the directions that people go and a good reminder that when you go that far in education and even at a master's level, a nutrition level, as anybody who's a lifelong learner, you really realize the more you know, the more you learn, the less you you realize, the less we know. Um, so it just keeps you humble. And I think it really goes into the conversation that we're going to have today around gut and hormone connection and just how, how much we have learned, but how much more we need to learn about these connections and what we can do about them. Yeah, I think it's frustrating to the public that, you know, credentialed uh, practitioners, when asked a question, tend to say, well, it depends, or we don't know, or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, um, you know, or people really do want that definitive answer. But to me, if there's anyone giving a definitive answer on anything, it's a big red flag. Especially in nutrition, because there's so many factors that play into what we eat and nutritional like content or how we digest and absorb things, um, the impact of culture and all kinds of just social factors that play into what we have access to, what we choose to eat. I mean, it's like endless, the variables in nutrition. So I'm definitely much more cautious, just like you said, when somebody saying keto is right for everyone, or this is the one avenue to fix PCOS or whatever, name the condition, um, you've heard it, but that is certainly an area where if somebody has the answer, I'm running the other direction. Yeah, no, same, same. I I hear you. It's, you know, if you think about what we know now about the microbiome compared to what we knew even 10 years ago, for example, it's just, you know, things are constantly changing and evolving as we're learning more. Yep, absolutely. And it keeps me humble. I just even remember teaching big classes um, when I was at, I was at the University of Kansas um, in the integrated medicine clinic and just saying to the class, this is probably 10 years ago, like, it'll be interesting to see in 10 years what I kind of shudder at what I am saying now. And I, I don't mean it in like, oh, I'm just spewing out a bunch of crap. But at the same time, we just learn so much. I mean, it's, it's, very difficult to keep up with changing, you know, evidence growing and trying to put all the pieces together of the knowledge that we have. We have an, we are really in an information overload. And so it's, it keeps us humble at what we're saying now that we might have to adjust in one year, five years, 20 years. Um, And that's, that's just part of our role is continuing to adjust what we're sharing, the knowledge that we're sharing with people as evidence changes. Yeah, that's one of the things I love most about functional medicine is just 
staying open-minded about, you know, what's, what's changing and what's developing. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you first become interested in gut and hormone health? Yeah, so probably multiple things. First of all, having worked with all kinds of different patients over the years and seeing the outcomes that you can get from diet and lifestyle changes, as you have experienced, I'm sure it's very rewarding to see people go from debilitating, you know, pain or symptoms and through shifts in lifestyle through diet, they can they can really have like a bigger life. They can think bigger outside of like the day-to-day slog of getting through pain. So that with clients, helping clients get better, I love working with um, people who have digestive related symptoms. I think part of how we all kind of evolve to what we get interested in, there's this personal component. So both my personal journey and helping try to figure out digestive symptoms, you know, hormone related migraines, those types of things really drive what you want to learn about and then bring people along and help them. So it's probably a lot of different factors that have gotten me interested in those areas. Yeah. Are there um, specific conditions that you treat more than others or what are the kinds of things that, that bring folks in to see you? Yeah. I always say kind of the, the main theme of a a lot of people that I'm sure you've seen this too, but fatigue is a common, you know, just low energy challenges with, with energy throughout the day. And then digestive symptoms of all kinds, whether it's, you know, reflux, bloating, constipation, you know, gas, diarrhea, whatever digestive type issues, IBS, um, sometimes like SIBO and inflammatory bowel conditions, and then hormone related symptoms like, you know, PMS or conditions like endometriosis and PCOS. So it does vary, but as we'll talk about, I think there's so much crossover that somebody might come to me for a digestive issue. And then I say, Oh, so tell me about your periods. And then those are off or they have a lot of pain and symptoms around maybe their cycle that, that again, there's so much crossover there. So usually people find me through digestive or hormone related symptoms. Yeah. You brought up a couple of things about that, that I just wanted to touch on. I think you know, it's pretty easy to jump to the conclusion that there might be an issue with our gut health when we're having digestive symptoms. You know, it's like, oh, well, this is what's bothering me. So the problem must be there. But there are a lot of symptoms that can crop up that are not necessarily digestive symptoms, but ultimately go back to gut imbalances and gut disorders. Um, you mentioned fatigue and migraine for one, some mood disorders. Are there other kind of symptoms like that that you see and for you, like all the alarm bells go off that maybe something's going on in their gut? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times we talk about the skin as the window into the gut, just kind of reflective of something going on deeper. So any sorts of skin issues um, can sometimes be tied back to to gut imbalances, um, pain, because we, you know, really our microbiome is has such a big impact on our overall health and inflammation as well. So really, anytime there's pain, there's a potential for 
an issue in in the digestive tract. So, yeah. So when you're working with patients on gut health, what are some of the areas that you're focusing on with them? Yeah. So there's so many things we can focus on. And because I take such an in-depth and personalized approach, what we're focusing on first is going to vary by the individual. So for me, my first goal is I want to help the person alleviate whatever their most burdensome symptom is. And I'm going to focus there because a, it helps them feel better and able to do more of the lifestyle changes that help, help them continue to feel better. And B, it just builds trust between us. So if I can help them, you know, not have to plan their whole day around where a bathroom is, or if I can help them, you know, have fewer headaches or whatever the the situation might be, we might be focusing on different areas. So, and gut health is such a general term anyway, it kind of gets thrown around and there's not really any like agreed upon definition of what gut health is. But I think, you know, anything that's going to help support healthy digest, healthy digestion in the digestive tract is really what we're talking about. So of course, we're going to talk about overall diet quality. Um, I find that helping clients realize that sometimes they're not eating enough. Yes, there can be eating too much. And I, there's, there's a lot of things that go into kind of amounts of what people eat. And I don't know if you experience this, but people feel feeling like I have some like magical way of helping them find the amount that is right for them. But diet quality is so incredibly important, but also making sure quantity is there too. So if somebody is, let's say intermittent fasting, and they're exhausted all day until they finally eat something like maybe that fast is not working for them. So that might be an area of timing of what they're eating. Even something as simple as like chewing your food, <laughs> which seems so basic, but is something overlooked. And culturally, we're all about producing more like what the next thing is doing. You know, we're so out of tune with our bodies that many of us are swallowing our food without even chewing. And that puts a lot of like, there's a big job for the stomach and digestive tract to do if we're not helping it with just chewing. So, um, you know, fiber and, and that type of thing, variety, people get so restrictive that I think variety is often a limiting factor for people, um, or they might eat the same things over and over again. So those are just a few of the things that I might focus on with a client for gut health. But again, it really depends on what's going on with them, symptom-wise, lifestyle-wise. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a time and a place for elimination diets, but it you know, a lot of people end up kind of working themselves into a box by continuing to cut foods out because they're still having symptoms and they, they're just, you know, stuck eating just chicken and rice, which obviously is not giving them the nutrients they need for their gut to function or start to heal. Yes. That's a huge problem. And probably one of the bigger problems now, I think, early on in my practice and I started practicing in 2010, it was probably more, I did a lot more elimination diets, to be honest. And I think there was a function of them, but as I 
practiced longer and saw kind of the longer term impacts of them, whether it be excessive restriction or restricting something unnecessarily over a long term or continuing to cut out more and more foods over the years. So they might get a benefit from eliminating dairy, meaning like they might have less gas and bloating or whatever the situation might be. And then they'll, then they'll cut out gluten and then they'll cut out, you know, the next thing and the next thing. And then they're left with five foods that are safe. And then that can have a huge impact on the nutritional quality of what they're eating, um, their nutritional status, of course, um, the variety and of their gut microbiome, like the, the diversity of the actual microbes can be decreased just because of the fact that they're so restrictive. And we don't, we don't realize that when we're doing it, because of course we got that initial benefit from the restrict, the initial restriction, but then as foods keep getting cut out, we're actually usually causing more problems and we're helping. Yeah. It's not always about the food. And I know, you know, a large part of your practice is incorporating mindfulness in, um, and obviously you, you don't, you don't spell it out, but I assume there's a lot of vagal nerve work that's going on in your practice too. Can you talk about that, that mind gut connection? Yeah. So, you know, when we're in a fight or flight situation, which nearly all of us are have been over the last two years with the pandemic in some sense our bodies are kind of on this high alert of what's next and when our bodies are in that state the priority is saving your life your priority is going to be we need to make sure that we are safe so it puts you in fight or flight well the blood flows to your muscles in your brain because you need to be able to problem solve to get away from your brain doesn't know the difference between you know, if your kid's school gets closed and you have a big work presentation and you're having to do all the things from home in a pandemic and actually a life-threatening situation like a tiger or whatever the, you know, whatever the actual life-threatening situation is, your brain sees that very basically in the same way. And so your body will go into this fight or flight mode that takes the blood flow away from your digestive tract and into your muscles of brain that's your body's trying to protect you. But if you're in that, if you're in that mode and you're trying to have lunch and, you know, expect your digestive tract to like quietly, you know, digest and break down and, um, you know, absorb all the nutrients from your food, it's, it's less likely to be in that condition because you are in that fight or flight and your body is prioritizing survival. Now, as we shift into understanding that, yes, you have all these things on your to-do list as much as possible. If we can kind of calm down the nervous system through belly breathing or box breathing or meditation, or even just mindfulness, even just like some level of stillness amidst the chaos to help your body support that parasympathetic nervous system, which is the quote, rest and digest part of your nervous system then we're in a situation where our body can really digest, break things down, absorb. And not that you're not like in the fight or flight when you're eating, it's not that you're not doing those things. It's just not the ideal scenario to, to digest and get the most out of what you're eating. Yeah. I tell my clients all the time. I take an hour for an hour break every day for lunch and it doesn't 
take me an hour to make and eat my food, but um, I give myself a good half hour just to wind down. Cause you know, I feel like when you're so stressed, um, I'm definitely one of those people where my stomach shuts down when I'm stressed. Like I can't eat when I'm stressed about something. So I feel like my stomach is just like clamped down. So I have to give it like that little bit of time to do some deep breathing, um, before I even start to feel hungry, even though, I am feeling hunger in other areas of my body. You know, it's like, I can feel it in my brain that I'm hungry, but my stomach is not there yet. Um, I've always thought it's kind of paradoxical. The folks who are stress eaters, um, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, cause I'm not <laughs> same. I I'm absolutely the same. If I'm worried about something or preoccupied, my default is to not. So so even just bringing that awareness to somebody's presence of, you know, connecting their eating or even how and what they're eating to how they're feeling is a big part of what I feel like I'm helping clients do is tuning in to listen and trust versus what we get when we're in kind of quote unquote diet culture mode where we want somebody else to give us rules so that, you know, we don't have to think about it. And it's like, your body can actually give you a lot of helpful, helpful information, whether it's pain or calm or, you know, bloat, like it's, it's an, it's a feedback that you can listen to. And then you just take that information into the next day or decision that you make, or you could say, I'm going to just experiment with like what you said doing some deep breathing during a lunch break or before I eat to just allow your nervous system kind of get out of that fight or flight. And I, I talk about it with clients, like you can't necessarily often change the stressors externally. What our goal is to change the response to the stress. So I call it kind of tricking your body into feeling safe because if you do have all of those things still to do, it doesn't change the fact that you, you still can shift your nervous system by doing the belly breathing and the meditation or, or even a little mini yoga flow or something like that can be helpful to, to get your body feeling safe, which allows your body to digest better. Yeah. Sort of a fake it till you make it, or at least trying to convince your brain that you're safe, which, you know, we talk about a lot in terms of hormone health too, because your body has to feel safe to ovulate. Um, but I think, you know, we, we don't really talk about the fact that even the meal times that we've been, you know, sort of conditioned, you know, we eat breakfast at eight, we eat lunch at 12, we eat dinner at, you know, six or seven, like that was based on, you know, industrial times and the creation mm -hmm. of the lunch break. And it may not, you know, even not necessarily tied to diet culture being you're following some sort of external rules about when and how much to eat, but there are just things about our society that tell us what, you know, is quote unquote appropriate or not. Um, and even in terms of the things we eat, I have a lot of clients who are, you know, definitely weirded out by eating non-breakfast foods for breakfast, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so many things are cultural. I mean, just now I'm sure 
you probably get so many people wanting to know about fasting and keto. It's all culturally driven. And, and on the, on the beneficial side, um, there are, there's a lecture series at a university near us that is doing precision nutrition lectures. And it's like, okay, there's this increasing interest in personalized nutrition, food as medicine, like therapeutic benefits of food and nutrition. So Yes, it's driving culture in sometimes not the healthiest way, but it also can drive research. And so we can actually get some answers about what we can know about really in-depth precision nutrition. And and I think what we'll have to kind of keep in check as dietitians um, and, you know, healthcare professionals is yes, there will be all of this information that we can know about maybe genetics and predisposition, but you still have to really know the person and help them trust themselves. So it's always this really complicated web of quantitative, like the numbers and the quantitative evidence with like the qualitative subjective messy reality of humans, which is what I love about what we do. Yeah. I always tell people, I would rather have you eat a cookie and feel fantastic about it than eat kale and cry, (laughs) you know? Yes, absolutely. Because that energetics of how you're feeling about the food you're eating plays such a role. And I think, you know, regardless of all of the, the scientific facts that we're uncovering about, well, this is best for that and vice versa, there still always has to be that intuitive component. Um, cause our bodies are smart. You know, I don't, I don't know what it feels like to be in your body, which is why it's hard to prescribe an amount of food that's going to work for everyone. I mean, you know, I pretty much eat a very similar breakfast every day. And some days it's the perfect amount and some days I can't finish it. And other days it's like, I'm going to get up and get a spoonful of nut butter to finish this off, you know? Um, but it changes. And so you have to, you know, I loved what you were talking about before about staying curious and kind of treating it like an experiment um, and I think it's important to, to explore things like that with that sense of curiosity, but without judgment, you know, where you're just kind yep. of, let me try this and see how this works. Exactly. And that, that's where we really can take a scientific approach to like a, a one-on-one encounter, or even like somebody who might come to me that is not a client who's asking me about X, Y, and Z that they're trying. And like, I mean, I of course can go into all kinds of things where I, if I really wanted to help them figure out what might be best for them, I'd need to ask them a million questions, but I just say, well, just see it as an experiment that you're doing and pay attention to how you feel. And if it seems to work for you in your life and it also helps you feel better, whatever symptoms you're trying to resolve, then great. And if it doesn't, then you don't have to assume that it was something you failed. Cause I think that's also kind of the conversation people will have. And I just had a, I just had this conversation with a client where it was like, oh, it wasn't them failing at something diet related. I cannot remember what the specific conversation was, but it was that that didn't work for them. Like that just wasn't a fit and okay, move on. You have that data, move on. We'll try something else. Um, Yeah, exactly. Or I think you know, people stay committed to certain things because it, it should work or it worked for mm-hmm. other 
people and they, you know, even though they're not seeing results from it, they're staying really committed to it. Um, you know, I, I see that a lot in PCOS where folks have given up gluten and dairy and really seen no changes in their health, but they're, you know, following an influencer who says that's the only way to treat PCOS. And so they're, they're also feeling like they failed, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's example and example after example like that, whether it's that type of situation or keto because their neighbor is doing it and they had whatever outcomes they had and then they try it and they feel horrible. Um, or even just something that's not sustainable, like something that's so restrictive that, okay, do you really see yourself doing this in one year? And it's like, invariably, no, I cannot imagine this is so hard. It's like, then, then probably (laughs) it's, it's not the best for you. And that's, that just takes time. And, and also I think some understanding of, or some approach of curiosity and experimentation rather than, okay, this is the, this is the answer for the rest of my life. Yeah. So I want to talk about, you know, you sort of alluded to folks in your DMs and your emails. Um, I'm sure you're getting similar sorts of questions to the sorts of questions I get, which is how do I fix my fill in the blank? Um, So what, what's the problem when someone comes to you and says, how do I fix my gut? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Where to start, right? Yeah. Because you, because if you really did go down that road with them, you'd have so many questions like, what are your symptoms? When do they happen? Do you notice a pattern? Like all of the things that we would get into in terms of asking them, you know, what's going on to try to help them figure it out. And then I would say people starting with someone like me and they haven't seen a doctor, like if they have red flag symptoms of like, having to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bat, like to have a bowel movement or blood in their stool or really severe bloating, um, you know, anything like that. I want them to be seen by a doctor and maybe referred and seen by specialists before I would work with them because of the importance of knowing what I'm dealing with in terms of their condition. Cause that will point me in different directions nutritionally, as well as if there's a medical treatment that needs to be implemented and somebody is overlooking that as, as a patient, like as the person who's seeking out our input, like to fix their gut, like I want them to do the safest thing, which is often being evaluated by their doctor first. So that's something that I see as problematic. I think people thinking that we have like a magic, we can just wave a magic wand and you know, there's, or this one thing I had, somebody reach out recently. Um, Oh, Lee, can you give me a a really cheap greens powder that I can put in my, you know, grab and go or whatever. And I just was like, why you could just eat some greens and you could also put some greens in your smoothie. Um, so the, the quick fix is always the challenge that we, we meet. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think definitely want to get a little deeper into this conversation. Um, but I know that you and I both practice from, from the same perspective as an integrative practitioner where, 
that doesn't mean we've written off conventional medicine. (laughs) Um, And especially with gut, if you haven't had even those kind of top level tests, like if no one's ever done an endoscopy or a colonoscopy and you're having issues, you know, we really need to make sure there's not something structural there, or, you know, maybe they're able to get more diagnostics while they're in there. Um, I feel like a lot of folks kind of have already written off conventional medicine by the time they end up in a functional medicine doctor or practitioner's office. Yes. And that's a lot of educating on what I'm not saying that nutrition isn't important. Like when I say you really need to see your doctor first, and I wouldn't say it's always that way. Often people have already gone through those hoops and they're like, I still feel like crap. Like I'm still struggling. And, and I will say, well, this is perfect timing since you've already been evaluated by your doctor and specialists. And they've said, here are your options, or I don't, you know, this is, I don't know what else to give you. Then that's a really great time that you, that because their role is really making sure that they're treating you and keeping you safe. My role is optimizing, you know, obviously personalizing care. And as one of the foundations of, of integrative and functional is root, you know, looking into the roots and the soil. And that's, that's where nutrition (laughs) is so important. The fuel that we're putting in our bodies is going to impact the function of the body. And we have these essential nutrients that we have, we need for our body to function in all of the ways. And so that's, that's a good time for me to step in once they've already been evaluated, but it doesn't mean that that doctor's role wasn't extremely important in your overall care. And I think it's just educating clients in what our role is and what their doctor's role is. And also just helping them understand that it's not their doctor's fault, that they don't give nutrition solutions to them. Like why didn't my doctor suggest a dietary change or why didn't they suggest that I might need this nutrient? it's like, well, they got maybe a week of nutrition, maybe. And there's literature on lack of um, nutrition education in medical school. Um, So it's not like, I'm just saying this, this is, this is a known thing. So they don't, they don't get the knowledge. So why would they, why would they present that to you? If that isn't, you know, what they're taught, um, they're taught most often medical treatment, whether it's a procedure, a medication, you know, whatever the, the situation might be. And that's, that's why it's a good compliment where integrative is doing what's best for the, the patient or the client. Um, and that can be either conventional or nutritional or usually both. And that's what we offer. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. 
The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, my my husband has ulcerative colitis and I think, you know, a lot of the doctors, they do stay up on research and they they start to hear promising things about certain diets that may help with certain conditions and you know the last time he went in for a checkup his doctor handed him a one sheet on the low fodmap diet and said here try this like no indication of how to do it, how to go off. And oh my we, gosh, we had already, you know, we went through the full process, um, you know, about three, four years ago, we did it. And, but, you know, we did it with me leading it and adding foods back and seeing what his, his limits were. And I, I just think it's, it's actually causing harm for them to hand out a diet sheet instead of saying, here, let me write you a referral for a registered dietitian who specializes in gut health, because I think you might benefit from trying this diet, but talk to her about it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Because you have you, I mean, I get people who've been on a low FODMAP diet for two years and they've never introduced foods back in. And you're like, oh my gosh, your poor microbiota, like they're mm-hmm. starving in there or, you know, it's just, it's, unless it's implemented in a really, in the right way, it's doing more harm than good. Yeah, no, it was super valuable for us because it really helped us identify his actual triggers and the amounts of food he gets, certain foods he could tolerate. Like, you know, I'm fine with all cruciferous vegetables, but like, I really, if I'm cooking broccoli or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts for dinner, I have to make sure to cook something like, you know, zucchini on the side because Mm -hmm. I, I can only give him, you know, it's, it's kind of like a toddler plate. I'll put his little (laughs) two Brussels sprouts on his plate and then the rest zucchini. Um, But I think, you know, there's, there's dangers too in writing off conventional medicine. Um, I had a client who I had worked with on her PCOS and we had done sort of all the root cause testing and we got her, we did do a little bit of gut work on her because she was having kind of IBS symptoms. Um, you know, so, so she's feeling better about her PCOS Her periods were more regular her symptoms were calming down. Um, about a year later, she reached out to me and she said, Hey, um, I got food poisoning over Christmas. And ever since then my skin has, I've just been, you know, covered in acne. It's painful. It's blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, what, what can we do? Can we do some gut testing? And I was like, yeah, let's get you in. We'll see what's going on. Cause this is something new that, you know, we didn't see last time and, um, got her, her, uh, stool tests back and she had, I can't remember which bacteria it was, uh, or which virus it was. It was, 
Um, so one of the, the main causes of the common cold that was like off the charts. And I was like, oh, that's weird. You've got an overgrowth of this guy. Um, but the other thing we saw was blood in her stool. And she was like 31, you know? Um, and that was something that she hadn't put it on her initial intake form with me, but she was like, oh yeah, my dad and my grandfather, they all have colon cancer. And I was like, oh. you need to make an appointment with a gastroenterologist like now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they, they found precancerous polyps and now they know they're there and now they can monitor them. But, you know, if she hadn't been having this new symptom, she never would have realized that this was going on or could have realized it too late. You know, I mean, that's where the timing of catching that is so huge because if it's allowed to progress with, without knowing, I mean, that's, that's why we have to keep encouraging true integrative care, which is both. Um, and because we have our roles and I think appreciating what we each offer, just like you said, not just handing the FODMAP diet to somebody, but making that referral can change everything for somebody. If they got to you first before they went on low FODMAP for two years. So it's amazing that you were able to catch that for her. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I think people are surprised sometimes that we do just refer right back to a doctor, but sometimes, you know, like you said, we have scope of practice too. It's, you know, we have things we can do and things we can't do. And one of the things we can't do is diagnose. So right. exactly. um, is important to, to know where you're at. Um, so we know what we're working on together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I, I want to talk about the connection between gut health and hormones. Um, you know, I often tell clients that we have to work on gut health first uh, before we can even attempt to balance hormones because you can't have balanced hormones when your gut is a mess. Um, you know, so what's the connection there between gut health and hormone health? I mean, there's so many connections, so many connections that it's like not even just one thing, even just thinking about the digestive process is driven by, you know, gastrin and cholecystokinin and all these different like hormones that are actually in the digestive tract. Um, but, you know, so many hormone related conditions can contribute to digestive symptoms um, like PMS or, you know, cycle related bloating and gas and change in you know, frequency and consistency of stool. I mean, even you mentioned um, that woman you were helping who you found the blood in the stool, you know, having PCOS, you're at, people with PCOS are more likely to have IBS and same with endometriosis. So there's all these, you know, hormone and gut related connections that um, when you're help, when and you can even say to your group, like when you're tending to your digestive health, you are helping support healthy hormones because it allows your body to honestly feel healthy and safe and vibrant. And that allows your body to do what it should be doing. Like versus when you are in that fight or flight, um, your body is going to be really focused on one thing, which is saving your life or protecting your life. And when it can be in a calmer state, which comes with digestive health, um, your body's less stressed when it's not inflamed because of a poor diet. Um, 
or let's, I don't want to say poor diet, but you know, a low quality, let's say diet. So, and that's going to impact hormones. I mean, there's even the astrobilome, which is, you know, Mm. specific microorganisms that live in our gut that, that process estrogen. So there's so many different connection points, um, that it's almost like my brain kind of explodes because it's just, they are inextricably linked. Yeah. I talk about, uh, beta glucuronidase all the time because that's part of that, you know, third phase of detox, like how hormones, how excess hormones get out of our body. Um, you know, and really kind of have to work from the bottom up when it comes to problems, because, you know, it's the, the whole metaphor of the, the bathtub with the blocked drain. If you don't fix the drain first, um, your tub's still going to overflow and you're pouring estrogen into it. Yep, exactly. And that starts with the gut, even like fiber. I mean, something as simple as, you know, fiber rich foods in, in your diet are going to have a huge impact, um, indirectly on hormones. Um, so there's just these little, you know, we can get into kind of the nitty gritty nuance stuff, but the, the basic messages are still very simple or can be very simple. Yeah. I think that the interesting thing is like, they're not separate. So it's like the foods that are good for your gut are not going to be bad for your hormones and vice versa, (laughs) you know? Exactly. Um, And there is, there's a ton of research on a high fiber diet, lowering estrogen in people with high estrogen or even people following, um, you know, an exclusively plant-based diet, having lower levels of estrogen, um, because of that high amount of fiber, but it's really, it's all fiber too. It's, you know, the soluble fiber that helps bind it's the insoluble fiber that helps swoop it all out. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the microbiome too, you know, we do know that the microbiome in PCOS is different than that in people without PCOS. And, you know, I always say about the microbiome, like we don't even know all the things it does for us yet, but we know the things it does do for us. And like, that's inflammation and blood sugar control and mood support. And, you know, so much stuff microbiome does for us. Exactly. And, you know, people, another challenge that I see, and I've even seen other, whether it's, I don't follow a lot of just straight influencers because (laughs) when they do talk about probiotics or nutrition, you know, diet related stuff, I just, I, I can't see it. So I usually get here at secondhand, but I saw one who had, you know, some hundred thousand number of followers promoting a probiotic and not necessarily that it's dangerous, but it sends a message that like, we all should be taking one. And for most people, it's not necessarily going to be harmful, but for some, it's not appropriate. It might make your symptoms worse. Um, or if you have a GI bleed, you don't want to be putting, you know, micro, you know, new microorganisms into the digestive tract that could slip into the bloodstream. But all of that to say is that, you know, the misconception of a pill, like probiotic being the the one thing that's going to make your gut healthy. Whereas the reality is that gut health and hormone health, but let's say gut health in with the effort of 
supporting hormone health, it's not like a one and done or like a 21 day program. It's a lifelong tending to, and that's what is hard to get through sometimes. Yeah. I think, um, you know, definitely microbiome imbalances are, are rampant again, kind of due to modern day issues. Um, you know, like it's, it's great now that we have antibiotics for little kids who have chronic ear infections or chronic throat infections. Um, you know, we don't die from those kind of things anymore, but it has such a negative impact on, on the lifelong health of our, our microbiome. Um, you know, and similarly, like the convenience of processed foods, it's like, you know, I grew up in the the eighties. So, you know, being a latchkey kid coming home and microwaving myself a snack, um, yep. definitely was, you know, or, or putting together something quick and processed for dinner. Um, not, you know, not realizing the trade-off was kind of this lifelong imbalances in gut health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, I think what we're learning in the process of learning is what can we do that could potentially, you know, our changes from what, let's say probiotics or whatever permanent, maybe not like, mm -hmm. and what's more consistently showing <laughs> suggestive in the literature is the consistent benefit of prebiotics or fiber rich foods that will help increase the diversity of the gut microbiome um, and support all kinds of different things with more consistency than what we see from probiotics. And that's where it comes down to food. And I was the same growing up. I ate tons of processed foods. I mean, I also ate vegetables, but so many people like it's not, it's not that some processed foods isn't going to ruin your gut health completely. It's more just the overall quality, um, of the diet. Generally, it's not like you have to swear off all processed foods. And in fact, some processed like baby carrots, I always say like, those are processed foods. Um, and so still can be helpful for, for the gut. Yeah, it's, it's really important. I think, you know, probiotics get all the limelight, but prebiotics really are the, the unsung star of the show. Um, you know, we were talking this week in my group program, we were uh, actually focusing on gut health this week. And I share with them the information about, um, you know, from the, the microbiome project uh, with the 30 varieties of plants a week, people who eat more than 30 plants a week have a more diverse microbiome and a healthier microbiome than people who eat less than that. And they all, you know, every time we get to this, they all kind of freak out about 30. Oh my God. You know, and I'm like, well, I just ate like seven at breakfast and that's just one day, you know, yep. um, it's not that hard if you're eating fruits and vegetables and legumes and nuts and whole grains and spices to get, to 30, um, you know, within a day or two, <laughs> not just a week. And I think that's so supportive, but, you know, people really do just kind of want to take the probiotic pill and be done with it. Um, similarly, I get a lot of questions about kombucha and is kombucha a good 
probiotic to eat. And, you know, my understanding is that that's, you know, even more transient than some of the fermented foods like kimchi or sauerkraut, um, you know, it tends to stick, you know, it's, it's only in there for as long as it takes to pass through your body. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's exactly like, and there haven't been a ton of studies necessarily on kombucha where there's a lot more research on fermented dairy. You know, there, we just know part of what we know in research and healthcare is based on what we've had studies on. So at this point, there's going to be a lot more limited information on kombucha than there will be in, in other types of dietary, you know, and other foods um, and the impact on the microbiota. Yeah. I think regardless, even if you are eating those fermented foods with those live bacteria in it, they still need something to eat. And that's Mm -hmm. where the prebiotics and the fibers and the fruits and vegetables come in to feed those guys, to encourage them to, to stick around and grow, you know? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about how, how gut health can impact hormones, but similarly, like the other way around, um, there are ways that, um, gut health impacts hormone health and, um, you know, or hormonal health impacts gut health. And I think, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind that I get asked about all the time is constipation before your period starts, Mm -hmm. you know, do you hear about those, those kind of things? Yes. And then the opposite, once you get to (laughs) day one and two of the period where things are really flushing out. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. So throughout our cycle, we have change, we can have a change in digestive symptoms that just come along with the shifts in estrogen and progesterone and, um, you know, trying to support the body through, and this is where just eating, you know, fiber rich foods in a certain time of your cycle, it's going to be more helpful if you can get into this habit of supporting your hormones, supporting your gut health all throughout the month. Um, and that, and that gets kind of away from that quick fix of, oh, the probiotic will just help me go. And I don't know what you've noticed, but like probiotics don't do that for everyone. Probiotics can have all kinds of different (laughs) impacts on people's, um, symptoms. So yes, definitely common for people's digest digestion to shift throughout the, the cycle, you know, in prepping for today, like the hormonal imbalance that contribute to gut symptoms, there's so much crossover with like endometriosis and PCOS and digestive symptoms. So, um, again, it's not like either, or you're, you're addressing both of them by helping lower that inflammation through shifting dietary intake through increasing variety of plant, you know, plant intake, that's going to help lower the inflammation related to endometriosis. Cause when you lower inflammation in the body, unless we're really talking about like acute inflammation, like you cut your finger and you can feel it throb or you burn yourself and you feel that inflammation, that, that cut or that injury to the tissue is triggering the immune system to clean up inflammation and calm it down. But when we have systemic inflammation in our body, um, you're not just like 
there's not just one thing that you do that's going to help lower that systemically. It's all of the things. And, um, and that's where I think people forget that there are lifestyle factors that play into um, inflammation that aren't just a quote unquote anti-inflammatory diet, our sleep, our stress, how we move, um, all of that plays into inflammation, which plays into hormone health and hormone related symptoms. Um, yeah, so were, it's again, all tight. Mm-hmm. You were talking about, you know, almost that conventional medicine approach to, uh, symptom management where I'm feeling a symptom. Let me change my behavior or let me take a supplement right now because I'm feeling a symptom when it's really not about that, you know, and we, we talk about this a lot in terms of, you know, those high prostaglandins that can happen that can cause the pain and cramping during your period. It's like, yeah, sure. The omega threes in salmon can be very helpful to lower that, but eating salmon the day your period starts is (laughs) not like likely to make much of an impact. You really kind of have to be working on that all month long in order to feel the benefits of your cycle. And I think, you know, your cycle can kind of be a report card of how you've done um, for the previous month. I know, you know, it's been so, so long since my cycles have been no big deal anymore. Um, And if I do have a cycle that it's like, whoa, why are my cramps so bad? bad? Or why do I have a migraine? Or why am I breaking out before my period this month? I can almost always tie it to something I did, you know, where it's like, okay, remember when you were stressed out of your mind this month, or remember when you slept four hours every night that week, or (laughs) remember when you ate chocolate every day from Christmas to new year's, like, you know, yeah, that's such a great illustration of exactly the point is like eating salmon on the day that you typically would have like bad period symptoms. It's not like taking ibuprofen, like it doesn't work that way. And that's where the dietary and nutrition approach can be frustrating because you're in it for the long game. You're not just doing the quick fix. So when people are like two weeks into whatever intervention we've come up with together and they're like, it's nothing's changed. I'm like, okay, well, it took you 40 years to get (laughs) to this place in your health. It's not going to be two weeks and they get it. But at the same time, when you're in it, and you're making the changes in your life. It's like, okay, I've been quote unquote perfect. Like why are all of my problems not magically resolved? It's like, you really have to kind of keep people's expectations really realistic. Yeah. I'm actually in the middle of reading atomic habits finally. Oh. And I, I can't remember what he calls that phase, but it's, it's a, the time period when you're making the changes consistently, but you're not seeing the results yet. And I feel like it's something like the Valley of Despair, <laughs> like yes. you're just like you're putting in the work, but you're not seeing the results. Um, and that's when most people quit because yep. they're not seeing the benefit of what they're doing where, you know, if they had just continued one more week or one more month with it, they might start to reap the benefits of it. Exactly. And that's why it's so helpful to have, whether it's a community or a provider like us that can actually remind them of that. Like you might, Oh, you know, people say, well, I've tried everything and nothing has worked. And they'll say, okay, so tell me the things you've tried. And then like, what of any of those things, what's the longest you have, you know, done that, whatever X, Y, Z change might be. And they'll say, Oh, I did it for like a week and didn't notice anything. And I'm like, okay, well, 
you, it isn't taking, it isn't taking a pill, you know, we're, we have to have, again, realistic expectations and you're, to, I, I love atomic habits and recommend it so frequently. And that is such a helpful because everybody can re- relate to it. I'm, I'm guilty of that, of being like, oh, I've been, you know, doing yoga every day for a week and I can't understand why I can't do like a handstand, um, and put my you know feet on my head. And it's like, okay, it's a practice. <laughs> it, it slowly and steadily evolves over time. And you know what we have with menstrual cycles, you know, you, it's like you figure it out in one phase of your life. And then suddenly you're in perimenopause and you're like, well, crap, now I have to figure this all out again. Um, oh yeah. You don't have to tell me about that. Cause I'm like I WTF. Like this is not what I've experienced the last 20 years. Like, I don't know. It's so unfair. It really is. Oh, so fun. Um, I do want to talk about something that I think doesn't get talked about a lot. And that's the connection between gut health, hormone health, and neurotransmitters. Um, Super top level, like what's the deal there? Well, you know, when, when I saw this to prep for it, my brain, even like the connection to the gut hormone connection, because it's so diverse and broad, Mm -hmm. then you add in like the web or the layer of neurotransmitters and they all are connected still. So neurotransmitters being like signaling molecules or chemicals that impact like, or that are being transferred in brain and like the central nervous system. And so things like serotonin, which is the hormone or the neurotransmitter that makes us feel like all is right with the world. That is primarily actually made in the gut. Now, whether or not we can say that what that synthesis in the gut is actually having a direct impact on our mood. Mm -hmm. But we know that there's this gut brain highway of the vagus nerve, which is the the nerve that, that innervates and, and controls our organs, like our digestive tract. Um, so just knowing that most of the serotonin made in the body is in our gut just makes you really (laughs) see how they're, you know, that mood and, um, that mood connection and gut health connection can, um, potentially be there. There is a lot of research in that area, but just that, um, knowledge is just so enlightening that, um, the other thing is that hormones like estrogen and progesterone can actually impact neurotransmitter levels. So like estrogen and serotonin have a connection as well. Um, so there's just so much overlap um, between all of them. Yeah. Progesterone and GABA, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not just mood, like anxiety, depression symptoms, but it's also things like brain fog or, you know, irritability and things like that can come from neurotransmitter imbalances. And I do think that that's, it's very common to see that sort of triad where you have someone who has an autoimmune condition, hormone imbalances, and anxiety or depression, um, you know, cause it is all connected. Yeah. And it, I, I don't know if you remember this, but for a while Arby's had like their, they were calling their like tagline was like good mood food. And it just <laughs> made me so mad because it's literally like what we know about like a, 
highly processed or kind of quote unquote standard American diet is that it is not helpful for our mood. It contributes to inflammation. And we know that in depression, there is increased inflammation. So it's like, it's actually literally bad mood food. Um, so that also ties back to, you know, gut health neurotransmitter. Um, but it's all the things that we've already talked about, you know, high variety of plant foods and color variety. Um, your intuition about what a healthy diet is, is probably right, you know, and that gets back to trust and intuitively kind of knowing what is healthy for you. I just always like to make sure that people understand there's not like some, there is a lot of information and knowledge to be learned about all of these things we've talked about on biochemistry and what we learn in school. But when it comes to actually implementing in somebody's life, that's why I like books like Atomic Habits, because it does keep things in the context of these little decisions that we make day to day that can pay off in the long run. Yeah, a hundred percent. So what are, before we wrap up, what are some key areas that you think most people overlook when it comes to gut health or hormone health? You know, it's really the non-diet related lifestyle factors like, and you mentioned them when you were kind of going through your checklist of why was my, you know, period such a, you know, so painful this month or so crazy this month, um, sleep and stress and, you know, environment, even like friends and community and how much of an influence are that can have on our overall health. And it's more just to really try to take yourself, take a like kind of take yourself out of your life and like, look at it from, you know, a bird's eye view of like, you know, do you expect to feel great if you are not eating until three? And then when you do, you know, you're driving through and you're scarfing it down and then you're, you're getting four hours of sleep. And I realize certain, certain seasons of our life, Mm -hmm. almost necessitate that if you have a young, if you have an infant or, you know, multiple kids under, you know, three, two or three or four years old or something like you're, there's not a lot of sleep going on. So I don't mean to say that you can fix all of the things, but it's just something to be aware of. Um, because even independent of dietary intake, if you're not sleeping enough, or if you have a lot of stress that can impact insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance that impacts inflammation in the body. So there's all these things that play in hormone health, gut health, inflammation that have nothing to do with what you're eating. I always talk about like the three-legged stool. So if you've got nutrition, sleep, and stress as your three legs, and one of those legs is missing, you better double down on those other two legs and like really gird them up. Otherwise the whole thing's going to fall over, you know? Exactly. That's perfect. That's a great analogy. Yeah. So, um, what's one thing that you would want people to take away from this episode? I think the one thing would be pick your one thing. So as Mm -hmm. you've listened to this, if you have thought like, Oh, you know, I really should just be consistent with getting like three colors at each meal or two colors. Like if, if right now you may not have one at a meal, maybe that could be your one thing. Oh, I just really need to set a bedtime and stick to it. You kind of know, people intuitively know what, what things they could focus on that could help them feel just 
1% better right now that if implemented consistently over time would have that payoff. So I think because there's so many things we feel like we can do that it can be overwhelming. And then people say, oh, you know, screw it. I'm not going to do anything because I can't do all of them. So I'm just going to do none of them. Pick your one thing and it be consistent. Um, and that will pay off. And then once you ideally develop that habit, which a habit is something you don't, it's not, a, it's something you do that you don't have to decide to do. It is just something you do. And that's when you know you developed a habit and then you can move on to the next one thing. So that's probably what I would say. Yeah. To sort of build on what you were talking about before, 99% of people don't need a dietitian to tell them what a healthy diet is. You know, where they need our help is the implementation and how to make, how to customize this, how to make it work for your lifestyle. Maybe, you know, all of the ideas that we have from working with other patients that have worked for other people. Um, it's really having that, that buddy to help you implement rather than, you know, I spend so little of my time saying this food's healthy, this food's not like you, you know, right. what yeah. you know, in your bones, like what's going to make you feel good and what's not. Yep, exactly. And, and even just helping them understand what, what's most likely to help them as an individual versus like what's what their neighbors doing or what their you know family member or friends are doing and kind of trying to keep the blinders on so that they don't get distracted and feeling like oh maybe I should do this next diet or this next thing yeah shiny object syndrome yeah. is real in health for sure absolutely um, well, Thank you so much for coming and joining me um can you tell the audience where they can find you Yes. So probably the best way would be Instagram. I am not always there. Um, and when I'm not, I'm working and focusing on client care. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook, less active there. And then my website, which is drleewagner.com. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us. And we actually met on Instagram. I feel like we've been, we've been yeah. chatting here for a few years now. Um, someday we'll meet in person. I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.